pray. Lord Jesus, to you be glory this morning. To you be honor and praise. May our hearts render that as well this morning. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray. We do thank you for these gifts, that you would use them for the good of your kingdom. Now open our hearts to your word, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, after last week getting through the passage about the ark and baptism, and that's one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, I had this naive thought that now that I'm done with that passage, it's smooth sailing. Next week will be an easy sermon to put together. And boy, was I wrong on that. Uh, This passage is every bit as challenging just for different reasons, uh, but it was a joy to study it. Uh, And it's a joy to open it for you all now. Uh, so as you continue flipping there, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's a very serious one, so think well about your answer. Uh, who here likes parasites? Wow, not one raised hand. All right. Well, the word alone, parasite, is not a pleasant word. It brings to mind worms, fleas, ticks, and just other unsavory, disgusting creatures. And we even use parasites and terms like it, other types of parasites, names for them, as insults at times. That guy's just leeching off of everybody. Uh, So while studies have found that some parasites may actually bring health benefits with them, shocking somehow, uh, no one is out looking for parasites to attach to themselves. I don't care how many good reports you hear that it could help you with something, nobody's going to go look for them. A parasite is an organism that by definition lives by drawing energy, taking resources from somebody else, from some other creature. But as gross as parasites are, Christians actually bear some similarities to these vampiric creatures. We can only live as we are connected to and drawing from Christ. He is the host who we must feed off of every day or die. But unlike most parasites, we do not attach ourselves to Christ. It's quite the opposite, actually. Christ took us and attached us to himself willingly. He united himself to us in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension into glory. Our union with Christ is the source of our righteous standing before the judge and every good thing we enjoy from God. He has united us to himself for his own glory. And because Christ united himself to you, you must glorify him. So with that introduction, let's read the first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So our text for this morning begins the same way that chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 began. We've been talking about various aspects of suffering as believers for the past few weeks. Now, Peter reminded us as readers that Christ suffered in chapter 3, verse 18. And now in verse 1 of chapter 4, again, he reminds us that Christ suffered. The fact that Jesus suffered is the driving point behind everything else that is coming in these verses. It is the grounds which will enable and support the truths of this passage for today. So we're going to look at two points. The first point is that because Christ united himself to you, you must separate. And so the point will be uh, figuring out what it is you need to separate from. So because of the driving point, though, that Christ suffered in the flesh, we are given a command in verse 1. Since our Lord suffered, despite being perfectly righteous in everything he did, you must think about suffering in the same way that he did. Now, we live in a world where holding on to the truth will bring persecution and trouble at times. We are in a spiritual war all the time. Nobody on earth is neutral or unbiased. Everyone serves either the Lord or sin. And that means that what faith does is it places us on one side of the war against the other side. And for that reason, Peter commands you to arm yourselves with the correct way of suffering, the correct understanding of suffering. And notice that this command is first and foremost about how you logically think, not what you do or even what you feel. And in the overly emotive culture that we live in, this is a good reminder not to be enslaved to our emotions. Instead, we must prepare ourselves for the war that we are actually in. The armor and the weapon we put on is an informed faith. I don't mean an intellectual faith, but one that understands the purpose and the result of Jesus' suffering. So in the previous section, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, Peter presented the full trajectory of Jesus' ministry. He suffered once for your sins in verse 13, putting them to death at the cross. He died but was also raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you go on to verse 22, and Peter says that Jesus ascended into glory, where he is now seated, reigning and ruling at the right hand of God. All power, spiritual and physical, have been subjected to his authority and to his glory. Christ suffered a deeper and more full humiliation than either any of us ever will. And yet he suffered with a purpose. 
in order to redeem his elects. Furthermore, he knew that his suffering was the path to exaltation and glory. So what Peter is telling you in chapter 4, verse 1, is that you need to understand suffering in that same way that Christ did. The trajectory of your suffering is the same as Jesus's. Now, of course, your death and suffering will not atone for sin. But in Christ's death, he united himself to you. So therefore, just as he died, rose, and ascended into glory, so you will follow after him. Scripture even promises that you will reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure, we will also reign with him. Then in Revelation 20, it says that those who have been persecuted and killed for Jesus' sake came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So suffering for the Lord is not a burden, but a treasure because it is the path to reigning together with Christ forevermore. And Peter commands us to arm ourselves with this way of thinking because it is not a natural or a normal or a worldly way to think about these things. It's contrary to the world's thinking and it goes against every idea of self-preservation and self-worship. But to suffer is to follow after Jesus. But Peter then gives us an encouragement in suffering in this way. He says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, some have taken this verse to be teaching what is called perfectionism. There are many variations of that view, but the main idea is that the Christian can somehow become completely perfect in this life and not sin. Now, as great as that would be, only Christ was perfect in this world. Now, Peter does put a huge emphasis on holy living in this book, but never to the point where he says perfection is possible in this life. Furthermore, there's nothing in the rest of Scripture that supports that view either. Ceasing from sin is not talking about the complete presence or the complete absence of sin, but the characterization of your life. Are you living a sinful life or a holy life? And that idea will become clearer as we continue. So verse 2 says that the purpose of ceasing from sin is to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We see here that part of ceasing from sin is to stop living for sinful desires. They cannot rule over or direct your life. Your stomach cannot be your guide. The overwhelming influence and the direction of your life must be to follow the Lord's will. In this life, you are to use your body and your soul to serve the Lord. Notice here that the body is not listed in this passage as a bad thing. We're not made up of a good soul and then a bad body. Jesus has redeemed both body and soul, and therefore we must surrender both back to him. We were created as embodied souls and cannot be complete as only a spirit. We will die in these bodies and be separated from them, yes, but we will receive new physical bodies after Christ's. But even in these old fallen models, we are called to live for God. Well, next, Peter moves on to list sins that are common among the pagans in verse 3. Now, these were not common Jewish sins. They were uh, set apart for Jewish, for Gentile, excuse me, sins. These are terms and things that the Gentile world was known for. 
But these believing Gentiles that Peter's writing to may not live in this way. They may not continue in these same sins. Peter says that they have spent enough time doing these things before their conversion. Many of these sins were related to celebrations surrounding paganism or the worship of other false gods. Greeks and Romans would gather in cities to feast, to party, and to celebrate their city's chief deity. And they would do so with all sorts of gluttony, sexual immorality, and perversion. That was a normal cultural practice. But Peter commands us not to continue in the evil cultural practices. One commentator looked at the tone of Peter's words in verse 3, and he summarized it as enough already. You have sinned against God enough, cut it out, no more. If you are a Christian, you cannot participate in any of those things, especially not worshiping false gods. The sinful world and Christians are enemies. They are contrary to one another. And that means that you and the culture are forced to an impasse where you must refuse to participate. And how difficult it must have been for these believers to tell their old drinking buddies, their family, and the entire culture around them that they cannot do what those people hold dear anymore. So then that raises a question. How will these people, how will the culture react to this change? In verse 4, Peter says that the unbelieving culture has two reactions. First, they're surprised. They're even shocked that the believer doesn't like having, quote-unquote, fun anymore. The ESV says that they are surprised when you do not join them. Now, the word for join is literally to run with them. It is to run with someone. And we use a similar phrase in English. It's, it's I don't run with that crowd anymore. I'm sure you've heard that before. But even from that word run, we can see the eagerness and the zeal with which the unbeliever runs after this type of lifestyle. They run to evils of every kind, always pursuing and yet never satisfying their lusts. And it's not a, a few actions here and there. It is a full lifestyle. It is a complete lifestyle of pursuing after sin. And when you, as a Christian, refuse to endlessly pursue your lusts, they are shocked. But their shock dissipates quickly. And the second reaction can come within a moment of the first when they malign you. Shock gives way to anger and retribution. The unbeliever is suddenly offended and they even go on a verbal attack against you. A commentator named Wayne Grudem explained it well. And he writes this. Silent non-participation in sin often implies condemnation of that sin. And rather than change their ways, unbelievers will slander those who have pained their consciences or justify their own immorality by spreading rumors that the righteous Christians are immoral as well. Does that sound familiar? My guess is that you have personally experienced this kind of behavior at some point. If you've ever tried to explain your biblical views on sexuality with someone who disagrees with you, I can almost guarantee that is the reaction that you got. And for the believers in Peter's day, Greco-Roman culture was the dominant culture. Emperor worship and the worship of the rest of the Roman pantheon was the norm of the day. Most believed that plagues, wars, uh, any tragedy that occurred were the result of failing to serve their local gods. And so Christians were not only seen as judgmental and countercultural, but as the worst dangers to everybody because they could bring the God's wrath upon them. 
I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but very similar language is being used by an increasingly militaristic far left about Christian beliefs, especially around gender ideology. Here's really the bottom line. There's a price to everything in this life. We face persecution for obeying God. We may at times suffer in this life for the sake of the gospel. But Peter also provides us hope as we do suffer. In verse 5, he reminds us that the one who persecutes and maligns believers, well, one day they're going to have to answer to a holy God. The Lord is the judge of all, and no one will escape his judgment. But the encouragement is that there will be a grand eschatological reversal. Believers may suffer as social outcasts now, but one day they will be vindicated. The unbeliever, on the other hand, will face no persecution for their sin now, but will later be punished by the Lord. And you can see from that that there are only two sides, the Lord's and the world's. You cannot be at peace with both, nor avoid the displeasure of one or the other. And it is better to suffer the displeasure of men now than the wrath of a holy God. But the unbeliever, they don't understand the ramifications of their sin. He looks at a Christian standing out from the culture, enduring persecution and dying just like the unbeliever. There's no advantage to believing in God or living a holy life, he says. But to that, in verse 6, Peter says that there is a difference. Because, yes, believers die in the body just like unbelievers. Because of the sin of Adam and the fall of the world, we all die. We are all in fallen, failing bodies. But in Christ, there's no reason to fear the death of the body. For though we die, we will live. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, so will believers be raised to a new life. And it won't be as floating spirits only in an ethereal world, but in real physical bodies at the resurrection. We will enter into the same glory that Christ did, not as God, but with God. And there we will remain as we await our new resurrected bodies after Jesus' body. And so we must put sin to death because we no longer belong to the world. And we must separate from the world because it is not our home. Suffering for the truth displays a definitive break from the sinful world around us. And it shows that our identity is in Christ. That's only one half of the picture in this passage. There's more to this picture than putting sin to death. So we move on to the second point. That because Christ united himself to you, you must love. So back in verse 5, Peter encouraged us to be encouraged us by referring to the vindication of believers on the day of judgment. We will one day be fully vindicated. But now in verse 7, Peter again reminds us that the end of the world is coming in order to teach us. And he writes that the end of all things is at hand. Now, if you are an unbeliever, the end of the world is not something that can provide any sort of encouragement or hope for you. But for the believer, it is the basis for all of your hope. It is the grand consummation of all things, particularly our salvation. And here we need to understand how prophetic language and eschatology work. Biblical writers often refer to Jesus' return as happening soon. But that was 2,000 years ago now. 
So then the question is raised, were they wrong? Well, the answer is no. But how we understand their words is often wrong. We're in the last days, the final era, the age of the church. There is no major biblical event left in history that must occur before Christ's return. Scripture teaches what is called the imminent return of Jesus. That means that he can return at any moment. We're not waiting on the thousand years to begin or some earthly great war or even the Antichrist. All those things are pictures of what is already happening now in the church age as we await Christ's return. We don't know when it will be, but we do know that his return is the next and final great redemptive event of history. And knowing that Christ will return and vindicate his church brings great hope and encouragement to believers. But understanding that we're in the last days should encourage us in other ways, too. You've heard the phrase, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Well, Peter doesn't agree with that statement. Rather, the knowledge of the end should give us an energy and a zeal to make the most of the time that we have been put here. If you're on a run, I realize not everybody here runs. I don't even like running all that much. But imagine you're on a run for 10 miles. If you're worn out on mile 2 of 10, how encouraged are you to continue on to the finish line? Well, at mile two, it is really hard to motivate yourself and push on. But if you're at mile nine and a half and you see the finish line right in front of you, why would you give up then? Seeing the finish line gives you a second win. It gives you that push to go ahead and finish strong, even if you double your pace from the last walking mile. Well, the same is true with the end of all things. We are to push on eagerly because the finish line is close ahead. Peter gives us two commands to summarize how we should live as a result of the closing of the age, how we should live as a result of this energy to push on. In verse 7, he commands two things. He says that you must be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, these words are very close in meaning. And Peter is really saying the same thing in two different ways to drive the point home. Don't live like the unbeliever did back in verse 3. Live a holy life and refrain from worldliness. In every area of your life, take your thoughts and your actions captive to Christ and his word. Even your prayers need to be a display of holiness and determination. We need to be a people of prayer and evermore as we see the end drawing near. Now Peter adds more good things to displace those sins from back in verse 3. In verse 8, Peter commands us to, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this marks a shift from how we are to live before the world in relation to God and how we interact with other believers, especially. What's the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. How much more does this apply to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Above all. Above all other qualities we are to display in the church, love is the foremost. Not a cold or dispassionate love, but an intense, a fervent, and an earnest love. You must display love for one another, one that is enduring and deep and selfless. A body of believers that are serving one another and seeking the welfare of others before themselves will not allow for most of the sins we mentioned in verse 3 to even breed. 
However, even the best of us will be affected by sin. So long as Christians are on this earth, we will still sin. So by saying that love covers over a multitude of sins, Peter is not suggesting that you need to be a doormat for others. Nor is he saying not to take sin seriously. Serious sins need to be addressed, repented of, and forgiven. All sin is bad, but not all sin is equal. But there are two questions then. How do you know when to forgive a sin in your heart and when to openly confront it? When does love cover over a sin and when does it not? Well, first, if you have sinned against someone in word or in deed, go to them and repent. There's no exception to that rule ever. Second, we sometimes are blind to our own sin and we sometimes hurt people without meaning to or even realizing it. And in those instances, Matthew 18 teaches us how the one sinned against is to confront the sinner with their sin in a state of love. Now, in both the first and the second example, love is covering over a multitude of sins. It is not loving to ignore sins that can harm brothers and sisters in Christ and that could lead them into further sin or outright apostasy. But then there's still one more category. Third, we're always sinning against each other, and I realize the irony of this term, but in little ways, little sins. And what I mean by that is that if we made a big deal out of confronting every poor tone, every misunderstanding, or every frustrating moment, we would never stop confronting one another. It would be a perpetual, continual thing. So if you are able in those smaller moments to let a perceived slight go without holding on to any bitterness, then let it go. They may not have even meant it. They probably didn't even realize they were making a slight. One commentator wrote that when love flourishes, we are not easily offended, but are willing to endure injustices. Our love must lead to unity and to fruit in the church. Now, if there is a sin which needs to be addressed for the sake of the unity of the church, then address it. This is not a verse excusing us to be passive or too afraid to confront sin. But if you can forgive in your heart, let it be and move on, do so. But whatever you do, whichever you do, do it out of a love for one another and for the glory of Christ. Because forgiving one another is one way to love fervently. Peter gives us another way to love earnestly in verse 10. He says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And this is one of the most amazing things, at least to me, of how Christ leads his church. We often hear the word grace and we think of it in a one-dimensional way. Grace is this. But the grace of God is more like a fine diamond with many facets. It's even beyond that. His grace comes to us in many different ways. Every gift of God is a gift of his grace. And so the gifts that God has given to his church will come in many different shades, but are all grace nonetheless. And every single believer receives a gift from the Lord. Not everyone has the same gift or the same levels of any gift, but all receive gifts. But the gift is not for yourself. It's not to make you look good. You do not own it. Every gift is from God to be used in the service of his church for others. And that's why Peter refers to us as stewards of God's grace. They are Christ's gifts on loan to us 
for the sake of his church. Now, Peter gives us two categories of these gifts in verse 11. There are speaking gifts like teaching, preaching, encouraging, evangelism, and then there are serving gifts like building maintenance, cooking, hospitality, and mercy ministry. And those are just some brief examples. Now, there are other passages in Scripture that talk about the gifts of the church, too. Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 are good places to look. But it's amazing that if you go through all these different passages about the gifts of God to his church, no two lists are the same. And the reason is that the types of gifts you can use to serve the church are endless. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to serve the church. You need to use your God-given gifts and passions to serve the church. If you love hospitality, have people over to your house. Talk about the faith while they're there. If you're good at working with, the, with your hands, help with the building. Help other people fix their own homes who can't do it themselves. If you love kids, teach or help with Sunday school. If you're a good listener, spend time with the elderly and the lonely in the church. Let them talk with you. Are you musically gifted? Help with the worship service. Are you wise, patient, or good at encouraging others? Find ways to serve and to help one another. Do you love talking with unbelievers? Go evangelize. And sometimes the best way to serve the church is by allowing others to utilize their gifts by helping or serving you. Don't be too proud to accept help. Because you might not realize it, but by doing so, you are rejecting the chance for God to display his grace through another saint's. Use whatever gifts you have and accept the gifts of others. You don't need to have the same gifts as anyone else. You should not compare your gifts with others. And your gifts may change over time. What you need to do is figure out how to use whatever grace God has given you in the place you are at to serve the Lord and his church. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the purpose of these gifts is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The maturity of the church is the end result of God's grace to believers. He has gifted the church for, his, for our good and for his glory. His sovereign plan for his church is perfect in every way. So when you stop and you think about the wonder of Jesus ruling, reigning, growing his church, gifting it, are you driven to a state of praise? Are you driven to a state of awe at what God has done? Well, Peter was. And that's why seemingly out of place, if you read through it quickly, you get to the end of verse 11, and how does it end? It ends with a doxology. The purpose of all of these gifts of the suffering of the church and of the maturity of the church is for his glory. Our purpose is to glorify God in all we do that his works might be proclaimed and displayed to all. 
You must arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. You must be self-controlled and you must love one another earnestly for the glory of Jesus. You may be suffering for your faith. You might be struggling to love those around you. Maybe others have hurt you deeply. Or perhaps your time in the Word and in prayer, it seems dry. You have doubts in your heart. Well, go to Christ in faith and plead your case before your Father. Because He is the one who provides all strength for you. He has willingly united Himself to you. And He did that so that He might feed and support and grow you. He will not fail to build you up and supply you all the grace that you need in every single trial. And one day he will present you mature and complete in glory. But for now, heed Peter's words and press on by serving the Lord for his glory. And with that, Peter concludes, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, your gifts of grace and your work of mercy on our behalf is really beyond words. It is beyond our ability to fully comprehend or even grasp. And yet, by your Spirit, you give us an ability to lay hold of these promises, to claim them as our own, and to lay them down at your feet as you give us gifts, to serve your church, that your name might be proclaimed more and more, that your glory might be displayed even through small acts of service in the church, even through tiny acts of love, even acts of love that sometimes are not ever seen by each other. And yet through these things, your grace is manifold. It is displayed brightly. Lord, in this we rejoice greatly. Father God, as we approach your table, help us to have these hearts of all. Help us to kneel down at the foot of the cross and to see your grace and your glory. We lift all these things up to you in Christ's name. Amen.